Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, we welcome back that amazing, insightful, upbeat, energizer bunny of an organizer, George Lakey. I was blown away by his last book, Viking Economics, but even more so by his newest book, How We Win, A Guide to Nonviolent Direct Action Campaigning. I've been an active worker for change for at least four decades, but George's contributions and knowledge far outdistance anything I've seen in one person in those years. More than 50 years ago, he had already written a handbook to help organizers during the civil rights movement, and his current book, How We Win, updates that by the immense resources and experiences he's garnered in the interim. With both conceptual and practical experience and input from the next generations of nonviolent direct action campaigners, the book is rich, it's an easy, compelling read, and it is a tool of immense value and hope for our world today. George Lakey joins us now by phone from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, before he heads back on the road for his book tour. George, it's really wonderful to have you back again today for Spirit in Action. Thanks for inviting me back. How many years have you been a spirit in action? (laughs) Well, at age 12, I was asked to occupy the pulpit for a Sunday morning service by the elders of my church who thought I might have potential as a child preacher because I was in a denomination where they believed that sometimes the Spirit could call to the ministry a child. So I was invited to give a sermon. So I prayed on what it might be, and what came to me was that I should preach on the subject that it's God's will that there should be racial equality. So I did that. And I thought I did a pretty good job, but then in the church doors where I stood beside the minister to shake the hands of people as they were leaving, I got the distinct impression from the elders of the church that they were left with no enthusiasm at all. (laughs) It was basically, don't call us, we'll call you. (laughs) That was 1949 in a small town in rural Pennsylvania. And no one wanted to hear that it was God's will that there was racial equality. So I date my uh, start (laughs) with that failure. (laughs) Or success. Did their lukewarmness propel you in a particular direction? It did. It propelled me right back to Jesus, who is a very, very important person already to me, and a different kind of reflection about Jesus, which was, well, some days they sing Hosanna as you enter the city and palm leaves and great hurrahs, and then there are other days when you lose your life. There's extremes in this business of being a prophet. (laughs) (laughs) And there's no guarantees that the elders of any church are going to pat your head and say, oh, you're doing just fine. (laughs) So it was an excellent experience for me. It was my introduction to the complications of of life. (laughs) Now, the main thing we're going to talk about today, George, is nonviolent direct action campaigning, as in the title of your book, How We Win. And we're going to do that, but I want to lay some of the ground again with you. One of the things that I think, if anybody who knows George Lakey knows that you are warm, that you've got one of the best laughs on the continent, and that I think 
uh, some people who are, you know, movement leaders, whatever, have kind of sharp, kind of angry, kind of brusque method to their madness. For you, that doesn't seem to be the way that you are in the 20 or so years I've known you. Did you start out that way back in the civil rights movement, or is the George Lakey personality that we see today pretty much what started out uh, somewhere after the age of 12? I was blessed to uh, be born into a, a basically happy family. It certainly had its challenges, but it was a blue-collar family. We had enough to eat. Times were sometimes a little on the margin, but we managed. There was a kind of integrity to the family and a very strong musical life. We believed that God wanted us to be happy. That's a great start. And, of course, to be in touch with the suffering of others and to be compassionate, uh, but to be compassionate toward each other and, and ourselves as well. So I had a really good start, and that didn't mean that I didn't face a lot of pain and suffering like I guess most people do, but always with that start of a basic uh, kind of optimism that there's something on our side you know, and I understood it theologically, that God was on our side and that Jesus cared about us. And so that was a big, big, big help and still is. Well, in how we win, you're really talking about social movements and how we get there, the campaigns that are part of those movements. And you talk about the Holy of Holy, I think, is the movement of movements where this confluence comes together and produces massive change. And that's where your life has been aimed since a very early age. Was your family in any way supportive of that kind of activism or merely preaching? Oh, no, my family definitely was. My dad wanted to be a union man and was very disappointed because uh, he had various blue-collar jobs but never got to work in a place that was unionized. As a young man, one of his first jobs was in a textile factory where a couple of union organizers Pretend they weren't union organizers, just got regular jobs, you know, but in fact they started then try to organize a union. And the management found out about it, fired these two guys, and put a machine gun on the uh, roof of the uh, factory facing toward the yard where the workers assembled in the morning before they came in to work. So my dad's experience was unions are so important, solidarity is so crucial that, you know, management will really take very extreme measures to try to oppose us from being together. So that was a kind of movement orientation that was really important. And then my mother was really active civically, and she was a den mother for Cub Scouts. I was a Cub Scout and very active in church work and so on. So they both believed that belief in God is not just about an internal individual experience, but that it has very much to do with community and making things happen and being a doer. And so it was natural for me as a boy to accept that. And people can hear a little bit more about those stories in my previous interviews with you. Folks, just go to org, search for George Lakey. Lakey, by the way, is L-A-K-E-Y. The links are there to the various interviews I've had with him and some wonderful, wonderful stories. But today, we're going to focus a lot on how we win. You are somewhere in the range of 80 years old now, George, right? Yes, I just turned 81. You've written a number of books, and I interviewed you not too long ago about Viking economics, which is a really awesome book. Your books have heart and soul in them. 
There's stories that make it interesting. It's not statistics alone, although the statistics are there, of course. So let's talk about how we win. You're writing this when you're 80 years old. Why now? Is it that, you know, after you get in 50, 60 years in the movements that you've got enough material for a book? That's what people thought. Uh, People were (laughs) phoning me and emailing me and saying, George, you need to write a book. The teenagers in part in the, you know in Florida are in revolt against gun massacres, and so many groups in the country are standing up for themselves about pipelines and so many issues, and they don't have a handbook. And 50 years ago, you wrote a manual for direct action for the civil rights movement, so you're the guy to do this. You could do it faster than anybody else. So please do it, do it. And I was resisting, frankly because I found the writing of Viking Economics, I'm glad it came out so smoothly and so fluently and people find it a page-turner, but the writing of it was not a page-turner. It was a really hard slog. So I was still in the mode to want to recuperate you know, from finishing that book. So I got in touch with my publisher, Melville House, and to my editor, I said, look, uh, my friends are urging me to write this kind of book, and I am not sure about it. And it looks to me like it's not the kind of book you would want to publish anyway, right? And he emailed me back immediately and said, you're so wrong. We want to publish this. We will accelerate production of it. This is the book for the moment. This is what everybody wants to know, how to win, how to win justice, how to win you know, peace. This is what we want. So I did, and I wrote it in five months, and I really surprised myself. I, I didn't know I could do that. But it is just as you suspected. It's that I've been blessed to live a whole life devoted to social movements, to pulling groups together to get things done. And I've failed sometimes, and other times we won, and I've been able to uh, work, you know, at Swarthmore College. I was a teacher there as a professor at University of Pennsylvania and so on. So thanks to uh, an early discovery of sociology, I was able to make sense of social movements and organizations and what's going on and reflect on my experience, the activist experience I was having through the lens of a discipline that understands these things. And altogether, I just feel, you know, very blessed that I was able to do it and to do it quickly because I was tired of doing that kind of work, but was able to resort so much to my own personal experience. And then because I love history, I was able to reach back a century all the way back to the women's suffrage movement in this country that was successful by doing a nonviolent direct action campaign. So I brought into the book stories from a century's worth of wins in order to take from those stories the lessons that are most relevant for today. This book, now again, this one's called How We Win, A Guide to Nonviolent Direct Action Campaigning. Fifty years ago, you write a manual for direct action. How much better, richer, more important is this one? Or if we went back and read a manual for direct action, which I haven't ever seen it, how valuable would that be in this day and age? It wouldn't be much valuable. It was very valuable for the 60s, not only for the civil rights movement, where it was considered by some people to be like a Red Cross handbook. One civil rights worker told me, this is the Red Cross handbook for us. It's what to do until Dr. King comes. <laughs> so it was a very important book for the civil rights movement and then for the anti-war movement and movements that followed for a while. 
But it finally got old and out of print, and it's not a value now. I think what's valuable now is this new one because what this does that the other one couldn't do is it speaks to this political moment, the particular kind of polarization that we now have in our society, the way people are screaming at each other and not listening and the violence that's breaking out and so on. So this book speaks to the now, and it also speaks to the broader and broader understanding that our society is going in the wrong direction and that that's because it's being dominated by an economic elite that really cares only mostly about its own pocketbook rather than the well-being of the country as a whole. So we didn't have that understanding in the 60s. There was a robust economy. People thought, well, things are pretty good and our country is a kind of doer country and so if we've discovered poverty well then we can do something about that and if we've discovered racism well we can do something about that and that's because we had a sense that those who had the most power in our society could be persuaded to do the right thing but now it's more and more widely understood that there's a kind of opposition i mean warren buffett actually came out to uh, the new york times in 2006 and just, you know, in a broad-ranging interview, he acknowledged, well, um, there is class war going on, and my class, the rich, started it. This is Warren Buffett, you know, the billionaire. My class started it, and he said, we're winning. He just said that right out, and the New York Times <laughs> published it. You know, so there's just, you know, more and more understanding that what we're having to do now is much heavier lifting than what we thought we had to do in the 60s. We thought then we could just like cold water, you know, throw people in a shower and have cold water and people would wake up and then do the right thing. And now we're understanding, no, 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 there's actually a force that's not on our side, that's just self-absorbed and not caring about justice and not caring about the common good and not caring about the environment and so on. And so we're going to have to take matters into our own hands. And this kind of book, therefore, it shows both how to do the stuff that the civil rights movement did learn how to do very well, which was specific campaigns to get specific goals won, but also how to move those campaigns into larger movements, which in turn can learn how to work with each other in such a way to become a movement of movements. And it's that level of engagement and confrontation that would enable us to actually change our society in a decisive way. So this is, a, in that way, a more ambitious book for a more ambitious time because we now understand that things are way more complicated than we used to think they were in the 60s. <laughs> I think all except the least educated, least informed people know at least about the civil rights movement, and they know something about Gandhi and his actions over in India and South Africa. They know about those two cases of nonviolent action. They don't know about three-quarters of the things that you mention in the book. A lot of people don't know this. And as a matter of fact, I was having a discussion via Facebook with a cousin of mine, Pat, who says this is all just uh, rainbow dreams and uh, unicorns, this idea about nonviolent action working. Why are so many people so ill-informed about nonviolent action. There's been so many campaigns that have been so successful, and I'd like you to trundle out, if you would, some of the overall statistics about effectiveness. 
Why is this knowledge so restricted in terms of who knows it? Well, we depend often on mass media, don't we, to learn about the world. And the people who write the stories and so on don't really understand how social movements work and how nonviolent campaigns work. So they understand when you have, say, the day after the inauguration of Donald Trump, what was it, um, something like 4 million people going out for a day. They understand that. So they'll cover the dramatic one-day wonders, you know, that happen from time to time. The Black Lives Matter going into the streets, blockading and so on the day after some youngster has been um, killed by the police. They'll do that, but they don't cover a campaign. And that's a big, big problem because the one-day events don't make any change. I mean, they hardly make any change. They don't accomplish any actual victories. Sometimes they set things up to encourage people to then get involved, but they don't by themselves make any change. It's campaigns that actually deliver the goods. But following a campaign requires a kind of media persistence. You know, journalists need to cover a campaign because they need to be persistent in doing so, they will do that for an electoral campaign, but they won't do it for a nonviolent direct action campaign. And so there are plenty of journalists who understand electoral campaigns. They can follow the president or the senator or the state representative. They can follow that campaign. They understand those dynamics, but they don't understand nonviolent direct action campaigns and aren't able to follow it over time and see how it either grows and succeeds or it you know staggers to into collapse, whatever it does, just as electoral campaigns sometimes win, sometimes lose. They just don't understand that mechanism. So that's one reason why at Swarthmore College, students and I created a database that includes now over 1,100 nonviolent direct action campaigns from almost 200 countries. Overwhelming number of those have succeeded, even in throwing out dictators, even in bringing down uh, military-based dictators of countries. So the database shows enormous, enormous power that can be uh, developed through a nonviolent direct action campaign. And one reason why we did that work, and it's still going on. This spring, there's another batch of cases that are going to be worked on by students and put on the website. It's actual website. The name of the website is Global Nonviolent Action Campaign. Yeah, the reason why we did that was partly uh, with our attention to the media, basically challenging them. Folks, by the way, that website is NV, like in nonviolence, nvdatabase.swarthmore.edu. I've got a link on nordenspiritradio.org. Before we talk about more of the specifics of these campaigns and the principles for organizing, because this is a guide to nonviolent direct action campaigning, I want to notice one thing that only gets oblique reference in the book, and that is the action around opposition to the war in Vietnam, as we call it in the U.S. That wasn't included as a nonviolent action campaign. Uh, certainly there were components of it that were nonviolent. Why is that conspicuously missing? The main reason was its length. It was such a long campaign. I got involved with uh, activism against the Vietnam War in 63 when I was running a Quaker peace organization. But some authorities date it from 65 because that was the first major, major demonstration that Students for Democratic Society organized in, in Washington, D.C. And the war didn't end until 75. 
It's just a very long stretch of time. And so it was hard in writing the book that I wrote uh, on campaigning to describe that campaign. It just went through so many phases and so many changes that it just wasn't convenient to refer to it in the book. However, there is an excellent book being written by uh, Robert Levering, who gave many years to organizing in that campaign and is an author and an amazing writer and historian. And there is a book coming out by him. It's just so complex that I couldn't quite boil it down to something that we could use in the book. Well, let's talk about some of the things that you point out. And number one, a lot of people do think in terms of March, you know, the March on Washington. People know about the 1963 Jobs and Freedom March on Washington, D.C. at that time, I think the biggest up to that point. A lot of people know about that, and they kind of say, well, see, that's the civil rights movement. Of course, they're ignoring a whole lot that happened before and since that time. But they identify a movement with a march. Explain again why that isn't really what we want to do. And a lot of people, it's their default action. It's like, okay, uh, we don't like the fact that we're getting ready to invade Iraq. Right. Yeah, I, I wish it worked. <laughs> I wish getting a million people out or, uh, you know, 100,000 in the earlier days, that was a very high number, would work its will. But the thing is that our opponents know that we're going to go home at the end of the day. And they're still there doing their thing, whatever it is that we're trying to stop. So if the president, for example, and the leadership in Congress has decided to make war on Iraq, we can have up until then the largest simultaneous demonstration in the world because it was also very powerfully participated in in Britain and in lots of European countries and so on. Tremendous, tremendous global opposition to the war in Iraq. But what all those governments knew was that we who came out for that day were going to go home at the end of the day. And they were still there, still organizing, uh, you know, the first brigades for the invasion of Iraq and the first air uh, attacks. So that's why it doesn't work. What works instead is a campaign, which means a persistent set of actions over time. And the important thing to notice about a campaign is that campaigns can start very small. For example, February 1st, 1960, four students in Greensboro, North Carolina, go downtown. Black students from a historically black college go downtown, go to a lunch counter, go in and, and order coffee. Well, they know perfectly well that going in and ordering coffee doesn't mean that they've done their thing for really getting that segregation to end in that lunch counter. But they're going to have to go back day after day after day. And that's number one about a campaign. Number two, they also knew that they would need to grow. And they figured if they did their courageous thing that first day, they would be able to get their friends and grow the campaign. And if they grew the campaign, they could also escalate with other tactics. They could set up a picket line outside. They could start a boycott and so on and so on. So that's what a campaign is. A campaign is multiple tactics that grow over time and that escalate in such a way as you can win. And, of course, what in that case, in 1960, that particular one ignited a whole series of copycat campaigns. And there was the whole thing that came to be called the sit-in movement because there were so many mostly college students and high school students doing direct action in lunch counters and bus terminals and so on around the South. 
The civil rights movement does loom large in this book, although there's a few others that get somewhat prominent analysis. I think that's because that's where you cut your teeth on in terms of movements, right? That's right. That's where I was first arrested. <laughs> How many times have you been arrested? Do you know? I don't know. I've lost track. I was just arrested again this past year, yeah, in March. <laughs> You mentioned earlier, George, and folks, we are speaking with George Slakey here today for Spirit in Action about his book, How We Win. You mentioned that one of the reasons How We Win had to be written was because we're dealing with a different kind of polarization than existed back in days of yore. I don't know that that's exactly true in terms of the whole Cold War. I mean, there was a viewpoint in the 1950s when the civil rights movement started, which was, things were really polarized. But you particularly address in the book how we have to campaign differently in the age of political polarization, volatility that we have now. Could you explain a little bit about why that's so essential at this point? Yeah. The way I found out about that was through researching the previous book, Viking Economics, I was very interested in how Norway, Sweden, Denmark were able to turn themselves around from the situations they were in a century ago of massive poverty and lack of opportunity. Uh, some of you will remember that uh, a century ago, a country like Norway, Sweden, losing population like crazy, people just leaving the country, getting out because there was no opportunity there. It was the stuck, stuck societies. And then they turned themselves around and became at the top of the heap. You know, now if you Google various ratings, you know, for countries, the most prosperous, highest worker productivity, highest number of startups, economic startups, and so on, happiness, the happiness index, and so on, those Nordic countries are at the top of the heap, way, way outpacing, way, way better economies than the United States has, and so on, way more productive, and so on. So I was curious in writing that book to understand how could they turn themselves around from being a century ago a wreck to now being something any American would love to, <laughs> to live in in terms of, of prosperity and well-being and opportunity for you know excellent medical care available to all and all the rest of that. And so I found that they made their big move to change their societies in the period of the greatest polarization that they had experienced in modern times. Nazis were marching on the streets of Oslo. Nazis were marching in the streets of Gothenburg. rather. They not only had growing Nazi movements, but they also had extremists on the other end of the spectrum, organizing for the dictatorship of the proletariat. It was very, very tough times for them. That was the period when they made their biggest move pushed out the economic elite that had been dominating them for centuries and established a real democracy that could work for the common good. And that's the reason why they're in such good shape today. So that surprised me. I thought, whoa, I'm used to thinking of polarization as a time when a society is stuck. But instead, it was a time when a society could actually move. So then I started thinking more about our own history. Well, in the 1930s, we were very polarized. The Ku Klux Klan was riding high. You know, it had grown a lot in the 20s during the period of growing uh, economic inequality. And that seems to be one of the major drivers of polarization is economic inequality. The more inequality you get, 
the more polarization you get. Well, we had that growing like crazy in the Roaring Twenties, and then in the Thirties, the results of that were, as I said, the Ku Klux Klan, the the Nazis were growing, actually, in the U.S. Thirties and so on. Uh, Nasty, nasty stuff. And on the other extreme as well. And so that was also a period of the greatest forward progress that the United States made in the first half century of the 20th century. That's when we got Social Security. That's when we got child labor laws. That's when we got a whole lot of things that we learned now to count on. What do we do without Social Security? And then, so I thought, well, let's fast forward to what was going on in the 60s. And again, it was a period of great polarization. It wasn't such a great period of economic inequality, but nevertheless, the polarization that occurred also created a time when you might say the society heated up and was amenable to change. And so we got the greatest progress that we got in the second half of the 20th century. That's when we got Medicare, for example. That's when we got environmental laws. That's when we got a bunch of the things that we now count on. And so I then realized polarization can be the friend of progress. Well, that makes a difference with regard to campaigning. Because if you just set up a campaign that's defensive in character, it's like to save something that you've previously gained. You're not going to get much anyway, but you might save some of what you previously gained. But if, on the other hand, you understand that you're in a period where you can make advances, then you stop trying to defend the previously held gains that you made. Instead, you move forward. You set bigger goals for yourself, and that's the opportunity we have now. So this is a very different book from almost anything else that I've run into because I keep running into kind of defensive attitude on the part of people. Well, maybe we can hold on to at least some environmental regulations, you know, or maybe we can hold on to at least some of the the right that women have to control their own bodies. And that is completely the wrong attitude to have. I now understand that is completely the wrong attitude to have. Now, you spoke of Gandhi earlier. Gandhi knew that all along. He kept saying, you know, nobody ever won anything really substantial by being on the defensive. You have to be on the offensive all the time. And in that way, Gandhi agreed with military generals who will also tell you the same thing. They will say the only way to win a war is to be on the offensive, not to be on the defensive. And so the way the Democratic Party has been operating for decades, ever since Ronald Reagan came in, has been completely wrong. And what we need to do instead is to do nonviolent direct action campaigns that go on the offensive. And we're going to learn a lot more about that as we talk to George Lakey about his book, How We Win for Spirit in Action. First, I got to remind you that this is Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, nordenspiritradio.org. I've got links to George and his books. You can find the couple interviews I've had with him before, including about his book on Viking economics. Also find links to Melville House books where his last two books have been published, mhpbooks.com. Again, come nordenspiritradio.org and find that. Also, post a comment when you visit. There's links to everybody for the past 13 and a half years we've been doing these programs. 
You've got so many valuable resources at your fingertips if you come by our site. Please do click our donate button when you come. This full-time work supported only by your donations. It's not by government and it's not by corporations. It's because you want us to continue. We depend on you and we're in our fundraising period right now. A lot of the community radio stations all across the nation that carry our shows They are invaluable. They are the bedrock of what this country needs in terms of wide information and media alternatives. Start by supporting them. If you've got some left over, help us, but help them first. And so I'm thinking of the people at KCEI right by Taos, and I'm thinking of our friends on Lopez Island in Washington State, and I'm thinking people in the East uh, who are carrying our programs all around the country, down in Houston, Texas. These programs are carried, and we want you to make sure you support those stations and keep our voice strong and reaching as many people as possible. And George Lakey, helps us have a strong voice. He's been doing it for 60-some years now. How We Win, A Guide to Nonviolent Direct Action Campaigning is his latest book. And one of the things I really liked about the book is that you also include other people's voices in it, George. You include Daniel Hunter, who's one of my favorites. His book about casino-free Philly called Strategy and Soul. It's a mystery novel. <laughs> it's compelling, and it's, it's just some of the best writing and some of the best way to involve a person in strategizing that I've ever seen. You also speak with Ingrid Lakey. I think you know her pretty well. Was it hard to get her to free up enough time to be spending time with you? <laughs> She's given such brilliant leadership to the group called Earthquaker Action Team, which was one of those campaigns that when you start it, you wonder, how could we possibly win? It started in a living room by a small group of people, and thanks to Ingrid's leadership and others, it grew and grew and grew, and it took on the seventh largest bank in the country, which was financing mountaintop removal coal mining, and it got the bank to disinvest from its involvement with mountaintop removal coal mining. A lot of it was her leadership that knew how to build the group so that it could be stronger and stronger and stronger. And you also include talking with Eileen Flanagan, very active in EQAT, the Earthquaker Action Teams, Ryan Leitner, also active there. And these are some of the more current movements and goals and campaigns. And by the way, you you should maybe explain the difference between an action, a campaign, a movement, and movement of movements. Because a lot of people will know something about an action, but they won't know the bigger picture that that's part of. Right. Yeah. An action is the thing that we mostly hear about and lots and lots of people have participated in a one-day thing or maybe it's a several-day thing, but it's still an action with a beginning, middle, and end, and that's it. But a campaign puts a series of actions together over time, and it can a campaign can be as short as a couple of weeks, but it can also be as long as the campaign to force Barclays Bank and London out of supporting apartheid in South Africa. That took 20 years to do, mainly through boycott and sit-ins. So campaigns can be 20 years or they can be a couple of weeks, um, but what they've got in common is they've got a whole bunch of actions that are involved, not just a single action. And then put a bunch of campaigns together and you've got a movement. And of course, there was a movement that I cite the movement against South African apartheid 
uh, terrible, terrible conditions that were imposed upon black people by white people. And uh, that became an international campaign. So there were national campaigns and even local campaigns involved in, say, colleges to get them to divest and so on. But then there were those campaigns put together were movement against South African apartheid, and that movement won. And then it's possible sometimes to put movements together because there's often movements that have something in common that they can work together on. So a movement for educational reform, for example, in this country, uh, it's been scandalous how poorly public education has been supported in this country the last 10, 20 years. And so a campaign to restore public education to become the prize that it once was uh, would also be a campaign that would would involve racial equality and equality for other groups that are discriminated against and who have some mechanisms for that discrimination that are related to educational opportunity. Right? So you can put a couple of movements together. You can put three, four, five, six, seven movements together and do what they did in the Nordic countries, which is to put their movements together, which gave them enough unity so they could put the economic elite out of dominance and then take over their countries and have actual practicing democracy. And there are a lot of people in this country who would love to see us be a democracy again. Internationally, I think it would be encouraging. The international raiders of democracy and you know the degree of democracy in a country have now taken the United States out of the category of a democratic country and put it in the category called flawed democracy. So it's widely understood now that we've been losing our democracy. And uh, I think uh, I meet a lot of Americans who would prefer to have a democracy. So all the pro-democracy people can <laughs> create a movement that is alongside movements uh, that want environmental sanity at long last and, and a whole lot of other things too. So let's talk about something like what happened at Standing Rock or maybe the Occupy. It's called a movement. Are they both validly movements? Is Standing Rock a campaign or action? Where would you rate these things and why? So the Standing Rock would be an example of a campaign that stimulated other pipeline fights. Now, there had been other pipeline campaigns before Standing Rock became famous, but the drama around Standing Rock and the way those campaigners conducted themselves, especially in the face of tremendous adversity, also stimulated other pipeline campaigns around the country. So if you put all those campaigns together, you've got a, a movement, very often led by the people who are most affected, right, because they live there and they're, they're going to suffer when the pipelines break and also suffer by the land taken from them in order for the pipeline to be built. So that would be an example of the campaigns that together represent a movement. What that movement needs to do is to unite with other movements, though, I think. For example, bank accountability. Like, why are banks, which tell us that they are responsible and therefore the right people to take care of their money, investing in something like pipelines, which destroy our climate, which will hurt all of us? What is the meaning of responsibility when a bank puts its money into the destruction of our ability to live. <laughs> so there are these connections that need to be made, and uh, it's those connections that are going to enable movements of movements to occur and bring about the change that we all need. 
And you do mention throughout the book how we win. You say that building of allies is a really important step, and I think you were just referring to that. How about the Occupy movement? The Occupy movement suffered from lack of um, ingenuity and flexibility with regard to tactics. So we have a whole chapter. Daniel Hunter was so helpful in the chapter in the book on uh, tactics because he's one of the most creative tacticians that I know. They got stuck on one tactic, and that was a historical accident. It happened because of Tahrir Square in Egypt during the Arab Awakening. There were many actions going on in Egypt at the time, but the one that the mass media covered most of all was in Cairo, the sit-in and occupation of Tahrir Square. And that became so glorified and romanticized through American eyes that when people wanted to take a stand against Wall Street's abuse of our economic potential, the people who started Occupy Wall Street said, well, occupation's obviously a wonderful tactic. Let's do that. And they started an Occupy in, at Wall Street. And it was, to my mind, I thought, well, that's a wonderfully dramatic way to start. And it's really important that they then figure out what's our next action and what kind of tactic do we move from that to something else. Because flexibility in tactics is extremely important to, in order to develop a campaign. But they didn't know that. They just didn't know that. The leadership, and there were problems even of having a coherent leadership, didn't know about that. And the same thing happened in Philly. My friends who got involved in the Philly occupation, I said, Get people to understand that they need to declare victory and leave on their own steam and go on to the next thing that they're going to do around the same objective. But people weren't willing to do that. They just became very rigid. Rigidity doesn't actually work for campaigns. And if you had some advice, a chapter of your book that you think that people involved with Occupy, if they had read it and absorbed it, that it would have made such a difference, which chapter would that be? The chapter on tactics, because it was really a tactical weakness on their part. I mean, one size fits all. It may work for socks, but I doubt that it works for, for movements. <laughs> <laughs> and folks, I've said it before in this interview, and I want to repeat it. How We Win, A Guide to Nonviolent Direct Action Campaigning by George Lakey. And again, one of the things I really like about the book, George, we're hearing a lot of stories. We're hearing a lot of different voices. And people come at things a little bit different, and sometimes it's easier to hear it with a little bit different accent on the words, if you will. And there's all the resources that are spread out throughout the book. Uh, you've already referred several times to the Global Nonviolent Action Database at Swarthmore. I've got that link on NordenSpiritRadio.org. I'm going to jump forward a number of chapters, and I want to ask about nonviolence and why nonviolent and why not property damage. I think you cover that really well in those chapters, and I think a lot of people have little idea of what the competitive edge that one gets in the same campaign, either using violence and property damage or nonviolence and no property damage. Right. Well, I will say that the database distinguishes between property damage and violence because it defines violence as actually hurting people. And then, and then we say a borderline case might be if you went to a painter who was in the middle of a wonderful canvas and slashed the canvas, maybe that could be considered violence because it's 
it's damaging the person, you know, their soul, their expression. But basically, most property destruction that has been happening by movements over the centuries when movements get into that kind of thing is we don't consider it violence because we like to hold on to violence as meaning injurious force to human beings. With regard, though, to tactics in uh, the U.S. where property gets to hold, I think, a special reverence for a lot of people is really a dubious practice. I almost always argue against it because as soon as one damages or destroys property in the name of the campaign, it gets to be a huge controversy about that tactic itself and takes attention away from the reason why one did the tactic, the cause, whether it's an environmental cause or a human rights cause or some other thing that we dearly care about. So the important thing about nonviolent tactics, and there are 199 in the database that we describe and have found, have, have worked historically, have been done historically, um, the thing about nonviolent tactics is they tend to keep the attention on the issue at hand. And the tactics, especially that we call it an action logic, that show in the very doing what your concern is, those tend to be the most clear and powerful tactics. The classic example would be the lunch counter sit-ins when black students asked for a cup of coffee knowing that the answer was going to be no because there's no need to hand out leaflets about that there's no need to write a press release about that it's very clear what is wanted and it's very clear what's being refused and so the issue becomes dramatically sharpened and made more vivid by that nonviolent tactic and in general i would say nonviolent tactics tend to be more issue friendly easier for you describe what your issue is, what your cause is when you use nonviolent tactics. I think one of the best examples I saw was, again, referring to Daniel Hunter and Casino Free Philly campaign. He talks about the need for transparency in government. You know, there's a, a broker deal in the middle of the night that the state does that's going to foist casinos on Philly. So they agree that transparency is the need. And so at the one point where they go to the offices and they clean the windows because these people clearly need more transparency, <laughs> I thought that was so brilliant. And what's the government going to complain? You've, you've stolen our dust or something? <laughs> it was a wonderful, wonderful act. So that was connected to the next thing that they were going to do. So first they washed the windows, urging more transparency. But it was in the context of their next action, which they also told the media about. They said, we're cleaning up the windows of these people in order to get them ready, and maybe they will finally make transparent the uh, deliberations of the gambling commission that had decided to put casino gambling in our city, which we don't want. And so uh, next step will be to go into the office and root around in the file cabinets and find the minutes of the Gambling Commission because they're refusing to make public those transcripts. And uh, we think, we the public, we have a right to see those minutes. So it was a brilliant sort of one-two thing, and it definitely heightened the interest of the media in covering the second part, which did, of course, lead to arrests because if you go into an office and 
root around in their files, you're going to get arrested. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Strategic. I mean, and then when you're being arrested because you're trying to make government transparent, the message is so so clear. Again, brilliance, brilliance in this whole campaign and a largely successful campaign. One of the things that you mentioned in the book, and again, I'm going to just grab a couple little threads here, and I really think virtually everyone who's interested in making this a better world should read How We Win, A Guide to Nonviolent Direct Action Campaigning by George Lakey. One of the threads, you don't exactly say compromise is bad, but you talk about movements being co-opted that there's a tendency to settle in the middle as opposed to going for the gold, if you will. I think that part of the division in this country comes right now because the Republicans have decided, no, we're not going to settle for anything. You, we, don't, we won't settle for half. You know, Donald Trump is happy to close down the government if he doesn't get everything on his plate funded and uh, enabled to the degree that he wants it. So for me, not settling has a bad overtone right now. But you describe how letting movements be co-opted and halved. I think that happened, by the way, with the ACA, Obamacare, as people call it. They settled for somewhere in the middle, whereas I think going for the gold was what was needed at the time. So talk about the pros and cons of compromise, settling, stopping short of where we're headed, where our vision is leading us. Well, it is, I think, very situational because to hold out for the whole thing when the power situation is such that you're just not going to get that does then mean defeat for your campaign. That might be okay in a particular historical moment because it might reveal something that needs to be revealed. People might say, wow, here is this commonsensical thing that we all know we need. For example, Universal health care, Medicare for all. The majority of Americans think Medicare for all makes complete sense. So let's have that. And then the Obamacare compromise, of course, had a lot of holes in it and therefore could be attacked for the holes in it, whereas Medicare for all is a system that works brilliantly and would work for us. If the campaign for Medicare for all at that time, in that circumstance, had been willing to come up with a clear no from the powers that be, it could have been very illuminating because then people could see, oh, right, Big Pharma and the private insurance companies and so on have combined to defeat this sensible thing that would benefit all of us. So that's important to know because then we understand that we're up against something bigger than we thought. We thought we were just going for something sensible, but it turns out that there's real opposition to something sensible. So we've got a bigger problem on our hands than we understood. So that would be an advantage of holding out for the best. In other circumstances, however, uh, you might not want to do that. You might want to win a partial victory because maybe your population that you're addressing is very discouraged, is feeling uh, politically depressed, feeling helpless and hopeless. That's the situation Gandhi ran into when he returned to India from South Africa. They thought the British Empire would last forever and would forever dominate them and that they were helpless to do anything about it. And so he understood, well, in this circumstance, I need some wins 
And so as he traveled around, he ran into various places where a win was possible if he would join it and guide it. And so he joined and guided several different campaigns, one after another, winning. And then that woke people up and revivified them and said, oh my gosh, we are not pathetic. (laughs) And the British are not all powerful. And we can actually um, take them on. And we all know the result of that was that the British Empire had to get out of India. So I do see it as circumstantial and having very much to do with who you're working with, what their chances are of winning or not, and what the lessons are that you are wanting to be drawn from the conclusion that you come to. There's many more threads I'd like to follow, but people could just as well pick up the book. Again, it's by George Lakey, who's been with us here today for Spirit in Action, How We Win, A Guide to Nonviolent Direct Action Campaigning. I've got links to mhpbooks.com. Under their books, they have We Will Win. You can go to that site, and they'll link you up to a lot of George Lakey's activities, including he's doing book tours starting again uh, in just a week or two. On Facebook.com, there's George Lakey Author. That's a good place to follow as well. One last question, George. Why is Earthquake or Action Teams a special spiritual home for you? I think because we regard ourselves as a learning organization, a kind of laboratory in which we can try out best practices in non-voluntary action campaigning. That does make it special because very often people throw themselves into a campaign and just put their heads down and really fight (laughs) for the right thing, and that's great, but aren't particularly reaching for the craft of it. And there's something about Equate that I love. It attracts so many people who are saying, I want an important part of my life to be activism. I want to really know what I'm doing, and I can join this group and, and learn. And all of us have an edge. I'm still learning. We all have things we can learn about this amazing, amazing, wonderful social technology called non campaigning. And uh, I love Equate because we're conscious about supporting each other in learning and in becoming the most powerful people we can be. Well, there's so many inspirational examples in the book, How We Win. Folks, follow the links from org. You're going to feel stoked with energy for making a better world. And George, thank you for joining me for Spirit in Action. Love talking to you, man. I want to thank Catherine Thomas for production assistance on today's program, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 